I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you want to support the work that I do on Stageworthy, you can do that by leaving a tip, either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Your support helps me cover the cost of making this show, helps expand the show, and more. You can find a link to the digital tip jar in the show notes, which you can find on your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. My guest this week is Matthew Romantini. Matthew is a multidisciplinary artist who works in dance, theater, and with orchestral ensembles. He's a teacher, coach, director, and choreographer. He's performing Erica Batdorf's Waiting for the Dawn at the inaugural Dean Taylor New Works Festival, November 30th to December 4th. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. If you were to give me the elevator pitch for you, for you as an artist, <laughs> what would that be? Oh, Phil. Um, <laughs> I would say, first of all, I'm, I'm terrible at elevator pitches, but <laughs> but I would say uh, I'm a I'm an interdisciplinary artist. So I have um, I have a, a strong background in theater, and that was my training. I went to York University and and trained there, and then I did a lot of dance training. My life previous to being a theater maker, I was a competitive athlete. I was a competitive figure skater growing up, so there was a lot of physicality to that, and that kept going after I stopped skating. And so even as I was training in theater, I was, uh, I was doing a lot of dance and physical theater work. So the elevator pitch would be, I'm ultimately, I'm a theater person, but I'm a theater person with a lot of influences in, um, in the physical elements of theater in dance. Uh, and I also cross the floor to um to music as well um i do i do work with uh concert musicians primarily as part of my rather than musical theater primarily yeah the whole like being a figure skater there's something about about that that of course translates into the theatricality mm. um i often think of figure skating being like the musical theater of sports <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Uh just because of 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 its its flamboyance, its 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 uh its theatricality. Um we always used to say that it oh sorry, I just railroaded no, go ahead, you there, please. but we always used to say that it was it was kind of straddling the worlds between art and uh and athletics, you know, art and sport. Uh it really does live in both. 
Yeah, I think it's one of those interesting things because I think a lot of times, especially around the Olympics, when we start, you know, you start seeing it, there's that whole question of like, is it a sport if there's this artistic merit thing? And it it, it does have that blurred line in this in the sports world. Yeah. Um, did you. So that you were doing that far before before you were doing theater. Um, how did you get into that and how did you find your way to theater from figure skating? Well, I was, okay, so in 1988, we had the Olympics in Calgary, and um, there was something called the Battle of the Bryans. So those of, those of us who are over, over 40 might remember the Battle of the Bryans. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Battle of the Bryans, yes. Yeah. So Brian Orser, who was Canadian, Brian Boitano, who was American, they were always sort of number one and number two in the world and in, in competitions throughout the year. And then the 88 Olympics happened and Brian Boitano won. Now I look at, I look at his performance and I go, yeah, it's spectacular, you know, but at the time I was, I was such a rabid Brian Orser fan <laughs> that I, I felt that Brian Orser had been sort of robbed of his, of his Olympic gold medal, he got silver. But I think if I remember correctly, the, the points were, you know, it was like 0.1, a 10th of a point or something between the two of them in terms of getting gold and silver. So it was so close. Uh, and I cried myself to sleep that night. <laughs> How did you ever make it into theater, Matthew? And then, and then, uh, and then when I woke up, I, I came downstairs and I, you have to understand, I was not an athletic kid. I, I hated gym. I, I never wanted to do that. I, I just, I was uncoordinated. I was gay. Like I just, I hated it. And, uh, I came downstairs the morning after Brian Orser got his silver medal. And I said, I want to start figure skating. And my mom said, oh what makes you want to do that? And I said, well, I want to remediate this wrong. I want to go to the Olympics and I want to win a gold medal for Brian Orser. <laughs> <laughs> and that was why I started skating. Now, as a non-athletic kid, um, did, did your parents just, just, okay, let's, let's start doing it. Or were they, were they, uh, uh um, concerned that maybe this was like a, a whim that wasn't going to carry through? I think they knew me well enough to know. I, I always had this, thing that adults used to say to me when I was a little kid, it was like, oh, he's six going on 46. I see, you know, I was a very serious right. kid. And I think they knew that if I wanted to do something, I was going to commit to it. And that's what I did. I really, right from the very beginning, I started and I was like, I don't know how to do this at all, but I'm going to throw myself into it and focus and work really hard. And that's what I did. And that's, that's kind of why I'm also, it was also able to be a dancer mm. later in life because that level of rigorous discipline is, it, it's there in sport. It's there in dance, especially with the dance company that I worked with primarily out in Vancouver. So, yeah. So how did you get into theater from like, which came first, the dance or the theater? I would say theater came first. I mean, I was... <laughs> I was always a kind of a theatrical kid. I, you know, my, my, my babysitter and I would dress me up as Edith Prickly, which was an Andrea Martin character from SCTV, mm -hmm. uh, when I was a little kid and, you know, my mom would come home and 
there I would be as Edith Prickley, um, <laughs> doing skits and that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, so I was always a, a pretty theatrical kid and then, uh, and then skating kind of happened. And even, even when I was skating, I was in drama classes in high school and that kind of thing. And so when I stopped skating, I, I had a, a small stint where I thought, well, it's not possible to make a living as in theater. I love it, but it, that's not a career. And so I, I went toward academics a little bit more for a little while. And then, um, and then it took me not very long, you know, a couple of years to realize, oh yeah, no, this is academics is a little too, um, not, not, uh, human enough for me. And, uh, and so it was, you know, I really had a little, a little crisis as a 15 year old <laughs> and, and it's like, what am I going to do with my life? And then, and then I realized if I was really honest with myself, the only thing I ever wanted to do was to be in theater. Hmm. Hmm. So you had, you had like your quarter life crisis at 15. So again, like the, <laughs> yeah. the six going on 46 thing was definitely totally uh, in force. Um, <laughs> And, and at that point, did you, had you figured out, cause I know for me, it took me a while to fig to, to make the transition between like, oh, I really like doing this to, oh, people do this for a living. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I think I had that at a certain point. That was that moment after, after I quit skating before I decided to go into theater. Um, and I went towards archeology span and history and that kind of thing a little bit more. So I, I think I had that moment, but it was so brief, you know, I stopped skating. Um, maybe actually, maybe my timelines are a hundred percent correct, but I stopped skating when I was 15. And I think by the time the next year had come around when I was 16, I was, I was pretty sure I was going to be an actor. And to me, that question that you, that you said, once I'd made that decision, it wasn't a question of like, can I make a living at this? It was like, well, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to make a living at it. That's it. That's, mm. there's no question. Mm. So, Which I think is one of those, one of those important, uh, decisions to make. I know. Absolutely. I think that anybody that stays in theater for any length of time, there's a level of ferocity of desire for this, of need in it. And I, it's a cliche by this point, you know, if you can do anything else, then do it. it yeah, that's true though. You know, mm. it's a, because when I was, I mean, I remember, uh, when I was auditioning for theater school and I went to my audition at George Brown, the head of the acting program, Peter Wilde had this whole thing where he gathered all the people who were auditioning that afternoon. And he had this whole, like, flamboyant speech where he told us that nobody wants us and that, that an actor is a dime a dozen and this whole spiel that he had and of course we were all like 18 19 and so we were rolling our eyes being like yeah you tell you sure old man whatever but i know what he was trying to do he was trying to 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 let us know that like it's not like you don't get famous you don't get rich this is like you do this because it's the only thing that you really can satisfy, right? Can, can give you that thing, right? It's, it's the mode to express our purpose on this earth, you know? And so that to me is, is actually very compelling and exciting and way more compelling and exciting than, you know, recess or, or fame. 
Yes. Because those are kind of, I mean, those are, I mean, I think, I mean, success, we all want to be recognized, right? Yeah. That's the sort of yes. thing. It's like, oh, yeah. what do you, how do you measure, how do you measure success? If, if success is, 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 I don't know, being rich or whatever, then that's never, not likely to happen. But like, if we, we want to be recognized for the work that we do. Um, but, you know, I, I even have, I remember hanging out with a, another actor for a little while in my, I don't know, maybe my late twenties, early thirties kind of thing. And we were talking and, and it was really interesting to hear him talk about what the metric of metrics of success were for, for him. Um, and I, I remember looking at him and he wasn't meeting his own, the metrics that he had set for himself. He wanted, I think maybe to be in a regional theater, uh, you know, and be, it was, he was sort of at that cusp where he was like, just going from non-equity to equity. It was like right at that point for him and it wasn't happening fast enough for him. And he was just increasingly frustrated, um, and crestfallen and, and maybe even a little bit cynical about, about the industry. And I, mm, I, I remember thinking this is causing so much suffering for this poor guy. I feel bad for him. And I could see myself potentially going down that same route. If I have a very, mm. very hard, rigid idea of what success looks like, it, it sets me up for, so it really risks, risks unnecessarily. I think there's necessary risks in theater, but there's also unnecessary ones where we, we put ourselves in the way of suffering perhaps too easily, too readily. Sure. And I think in that particular case, it was a real learning moment for me watching him kind of grind his gears in that way, because it made me think about, okay, I, I do want people to recognize me, but I'm more interested in engaging myself in this process and getting the process to be deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more human, um, more and more expressive of, of the human condition. Uh, and that to me will be the thing that will satisfy. Do I want money? Do I want income? Of course I do. But process to me, I think is, is the crux. And that was a, a, a catalyst moment for me watching yeah. somebody else's kind of external validation requirements not being met and how hard that was for him. It's so hard to set goals though. I think I remember yeah. when I started like, you know, everybody eventually as an actor, you have to make that. Okay. So I got a day job, you know, and, but I yeah. managed to keep doing theater. You get a day job, but that question that they ask. So where do you see yourself in five years? And I come from the theater world and real and had realized so long ago that I'm not in control of this career. My five-year plan like is not in my hands. So why bother having one? Mm -hmm. So they would say, where do you see yourself in five years? And I, 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 I think the first time I was asked that question, I stammered for a good 30 seconds and said, I don't know, we'll <laughs> figure it out, which is of course not what they want to hear, but I've learned to bullshit, but you know, <laughs> Well, and I think some people too, I, and this, this may be a theater thing, but I, I think it's also, I think it's just a, a, an approach thing. You know, um, some people need to know the, they need to know the structure before they engage in the activity. Some people dive into the activity and we'll figure out the structure as we go. Um, and some people need to feel 
which isn't the same as organizing like goal setting or that kind of thing for the future. They need to kind of check in with themselves and see what's important and what are the priorities and that kind of thing. So it's not exactly goals, but maybe, um, priorities or something, you know, so it, it depends. It depends on the person. Yeah. That goal setting question to me is in some ways more revealing of the, the, uh, the person who asks it than the person who is being asked hmm. about what they think is important. I always think that it's, it is, it is kind of fascinating because I think a lot of times when that question is asked, the person who is asking it has like, they know what they want to hear. They want to hear what a is, particular thing. Yeah. <laughs> what is, what is, what is the correct answer they say to themselves for this person who wants this role? Do I want, <laughs> they, they, oh, they want to make manager. Excellent. This person is going to be with us for a while. Like it's all this little, yeah. it's this, this, these, these little things that, that don't really amount to, well, is this person right for the job? It's just like, are they saying the things that the robot wants to hear? Absolutely. I, oh God, um, at the, uh, when would this have been, this would have been April, sort of March, April, 2021. We had the census here and mm -hmm. in July of that year, and I applied to be a census person. Um, and I got a bunch of interviews. I was like, oh God, this is such a, such a dry interview process because I was trying to engage them on a human level and exactly what you said, they, you know, they really had they would ask questions and I would say, huh, well, that's a, that's a really interesting, are you asking this question or is this the nuance that you're, mm. that you're really asking me? And they would sort of stop. I could see, I could hear the deer and headlights and they're, you know, in the silence. And then they would sort of repeat the question exactly as it had been scripted. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, right. Yeah. You, you okay. We're, we're doing the robot thing. We're, do, we're doing that thing. <laughs> Do not stand in the way of bureaucracy, my friend. Do not stand in its path. No, yeah, no, absolutely. And I understand it, you know, because there's a level of equity they're trying to make in the interview process. But <laughs> for yeah. me, I, I, it, it made me really clear. And I got the job. I, I actually got the job. Funnily enough, I think because I was trying to engage them on a human level, they were like, you're really good at facilitating people. So anyway, it was that. Um, but I think it really revealed to me the the theater, like the real kernel of theater that lives in me, which is I, I want to cut through that kind of bureaucratic stuff. And I want to get to the human part of things, you know, I'm going to make a leap because I want to ask, ask about that, that, that bureaucratic and a lot of their theater institutions, be they theater schools, be they, mm. uh, theater companies, they have their own level of bureaucracy. And a lot of times oh, yeah. we don't, as performers don't realize the level of bureaucracy until we're like, we're, we enter the company and then we realize how many layers of whatever are between us. How do you navigate those levels of bureaucracy and keep them human? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that is a perfect answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let me, let me wrestle with that one for a second. Maybe something compelling will come out of it and you can cut out the rest of the boring stammering. Um, <laughs> I, I, to me, it's a function, I think of all of these people are in fact human. So, and one of the things that I actually think is, is really endemic in the theater culture, I don't think this is just Canada, but I, but it is definitely the case here. And that is a, a real feeling of overwork, 
exhaustion, lack mentality is really, really just prevalent. And so whenever I'm working with somebody and I get the, you know, hey, I, I have this inquiry for you. Uh, Matthew, I can't answer that question right now. Uh, I'll, I'll try to get back to you. Like, oh my gosh. Okay. This is not about me doing anything wrong, which is very easy for me to, I, I'm, I take things personally, you know, I'm an actor. Um, and so it's, re it's really easy to take that type of response personally. And part of what I've tried to do to keep my own sanity in this context and in the context of film and television work, when I was doing more of that or auditioning for more of that, at least back in the day, um, I find the more that I can remind myself that that's about that person's state and not about anything that I have said or done. Um, and if I have said or done something, I might, you know, is this, have I done something incorrect here? Like, is there something I apologize if I've overstepped something, that kind of thing. But to me, it's more about just remembering people in, and I've been in theater and man, I used to work for a company that I don't think exists anymore, unfortunately called the small theater administrative facility. We used to write grants for people and do marketing and do sort of managerial services for smaller companies. And it was an awesome place, but we were, we were overworked. And so having been on the admin side of theater, I, it has given me a real good sense of, okay, when you get that type of reaction, it's reactivity. It has to do with how exhausted, overwhelmed, how, how can I make this potentially easier for this person rather than, um, you know, just being demanding or that kind of thing. I'm curious about the idea of lack mentality when, mm -hmm. when. Could you describe what you mean by lack mentality in arts workers? What I mean is that we have the belief, I think, that there's not enough to go around. There's not enough audiences to go around. There's not enough grant money to go around. And that may or may not be actually true. You know, all of these things may be, may be grounded in some sort of fact. Um, but then what happens is that we become, we then turn isolationist. So there, there's the, every, every artist, every actor for him, her, their self, every company for him, her, their, for itself kind of thing. Um, that can, that can really happen, especially in the independent theater side. Like I don't, I'm not necessarily doing a lot of work with, you know, big, I'm, I'm not like working at Stratford or Shaw or anything like that. I tend to stay in the, I like independent theater. I would work for those larger companies. Absolutely. But, but I don't necessarily have as much experience of what it's like working in those cultures, working in independent theater. There is a kind of a, we've got a, we're flying by the seat of our pants. We're scrounging. We're trying to get every last penny that we can saved up. And if, you know, if somebody gives $500 to that company, that's one less person who can give $500 to my company kind of thing, which isn't actually necessarily true. So that's kind of what I mean is that that feeling that we are actually against each other as artists and that we have to be competing for resources when in fact, I don't necessarily think that's entirely true. Hmm. I have to agree with you. I remember 
a few number of years ago when I was I was doing a show, we were on tour to, to Fringe festivals. We were doing we went to the Montreal Fringe. It was our first stop, and there was an artist there named Cameron Moore. And Cameron okay. gave this um this 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 she had this uh, uh fr Montreal Fringe one hundred and one like like mm. fringing in general like promoting nice. and stuff because she was a nonstop machine as far as like promoting goes. And the first thing that she said was there is audience enough for everyone. We are not in competition. Yeah. <clears throat> and I have firmly believed that I've gotten into arguments with people since then claiming that there is audience enough for everyone, because I, I do believe that we don't need to compete with each other. And if we go into it with like, if they go to that show, then I'm losing an audience member. I no. don't think that's the case. I no. don't think that's the case. It, it, no. It's the work that brings people in, not the fact that they've already gone to see something. So speaking about day jobs, you talked about day jobs a couple a couple moments ago. I can think of two day job examples of this. Number one, I used to work at a kitchen store when I lived in Ottawa, and I love that place. We, I remember uh, there was another kitchen store literally down the street, like the next block over. And uh, I remember somebody asked for something. I knew the other kitchen store carried that brand. And I didn't say anything. And my manager, who, who then became a very close friend of mine over the years, she said, tell them about Ma Cuisine. Like, tell them to go there. Because people come into this area for kitchen. That's what they come here for. So if we tell them, yes, keep coming into this area. If you're looking for something for your kitchen, you can, you can get it at Mac Cuisine. You can get it here at Domus. You can, you, you know, you can do it. Um, it was, it was a real, I was in my early twenties at the time and, you know, working under some lack mentality and competition, mm. uh, you know, figure skater competition, uh, was just embedded in how I thought and saw the world. And that was a real eye opening moment for me. It was simple. It was retail, but it was like, oh yeah, there's people are in a culture. And then the other one was when, you know, speaking about, about, you know, picking up a day job, I, I started working in the wellness industry. I started teaching yoga and then I, I kind of started a private practice as a yoga therapist. And when I set up my private practice, there were two other yoga teachers at the studio where I was setting up that were just finishing their training and they were really angry that I was first to market. Because their training was, uh, they weren't allowed to start seeing practice members of clients until they were finished their training and they had gone through two years and I understand their frustration. And for me, I, the training that I did, the person who, who ran that training said, you have to be seeing clients right away because in order to even get into the next year of the training, you need to have a certain number of case studies with paying clients that was so she was trying to teach us to open a business as well as you know learn the thing so anyway she we i i set up they were really angry they they you know demanded a meeting with the studio owner and everything like that and when we got into the meeting first of all i was a little i was i i felt pretty you know attacked and antagonized i feel very attacked uh -huh. um and, uh, but I also knew to go in with real clarity around and this is the, this gets back to the audience point now is, well, who is your audience or who are your clients or your practice member? Who do you want to work with? And the more specific you can be about that, the more specific, you know, 
who you're talking to and what you're trying to say to them. That to me is like, there's your audience. You don't have to worry about, okay, well, I'm, I'm competing with this other person who's doing this other, that other person has a total other point of view. And yes, people might come and see both your shows, but if you are trying to build audience, I think there's something to be said for real clarity of vision in order to build a loyal, I don't even like that word, but, but like a, a compelled audience that wants to come back to and see more of your work. That, that summer when I was on tour, that, that speech, and you could see this in all the people who had taken that little, uh, course with Cameron. Um, and that sort of like was something that spread throughout the entire tour in that we were all talking up other people's shows. Like people were like, I loved your show. Great. I'm so glad you liked my show. Have you seen so-and-so's show? Like this sort of stuff, like sharing and that I remember, uh, uh, hearing stories where somebody, um, you know, they were, they were flyering and they were like, well, here's, I, I have two shows left. And the person was like, I can't, I'm looking at the schedule. I can't make your show. And this person was like, all right, let's take a look. Whose show can you make? And they were like, I know this guy's show is really good. And I know this show is really good. These are shows that you can make, like, like taking the time yeah. to go through that person went to see a bunch of shows and had such a warm feeling about, about the fringe, which is so um, you know, we sometimes forget that. I know in, in Toronto, I think sometimes people think they feel like they are in competition with other shows mm-hmm. and it, it is, it could be further from the truth. I think we're in an interesting moment right now because we're, you know, we're, I'm of the mind, this pandemic is still happening. You know, I'm, I'm not one of the like, well, we're post pandemic, like, no, <laughs> no. Uh, so <laughs> You could take that or leave it. But ultimately what's happening is we're coming out of lockdown time. And I have been really lucky to, I work at um, Randolph College for the performing arts as well. And um, the acting area head there has secured a bunch of group tickets to shows. So every week we've been going and seeing shows. We, you know, we, we went and saw Queen Goneril. We saw King Lear. We saw Uncle Vanya. We saw Bengal Tiger. We saw we're going to see the waltz. Like we're we're seeing we're seeing shows every week. First of all, the students need that. But the my actual point has to do with what I'm what I'm seeing in the audiences, which is they're full. First of all, they're quite full, and. It seems to me that people are really, really relieved to be having a collective experience of some kind. So as much as this has been a gong show of epic proportions these last two years for theater and and terrible for theater artists, especially um, the aftermath in some ways we forget culturally, I think in Toronto and maybe in Canada in general, and I've, I've worked in different, different environments in Canada. I've worked in Vancouver a bunch and a little bit out East. And, and I think that we sometimes forget that we have culture and that culture requires our participation and post lockdown where now we are allowed to have collective experiences again. I think people are, seem to be really hunting for collective experiences of which, you know, theater, sport, concerts, clubs, all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's in some ways, uh, you know, uh, I think an important thing that's happening right now and, it, and an exciting thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you have two years of, 
of of not doing things oh my of, of not being able to do things and sort of being like stuck at home with netflix the idea of of going out and and sitting in a room i remember when i first when the the live recorded version of 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 hamilton was on uh mm. disney plus when it first when it first landed there yeah i remember watching it and you know great i could see the actors faces close up and all that stuff which i couldn't do when i saw it live but what it really made me feel like was I miss this audience. I miss that, that collective experience because theater as they, I didn't understand it when they said it in first years, theater is not a building. It's not, it's not the play. It's when the audience and the performer breathe as one. And I was like, I didn't understand it until I was in it until I experienced it. And then I was like, Oh, that's what that is. I went and saw um, in one of those moments where we were out of a lockdown and then, you know, one of those interstitial moments. Um, and there was, uh, a production, I think, I think it was at the princess of Wales, maybe, um, called blindness. And it was, mm. uh, based on the book by Jose Saramago, which he was one of my favorite authors. And, um, and I went with, a with, somebody and the way that it was set up was that the audience was actually on the stage in these pods so you went with somebody uh, or you went on your own and you got a little couple of chairs and then they were six feet or eight feet away from another couple of chairs and then we put on headphones like this and it was uh it was a recording of Juliet Stevenson who Jesus, Mary and Joseph, she's such a brilliant actor, um, reading and doing all the characters, basically like an, almost like an audio book. But, and I, I was kind of like, it's Juliet Stevenson, it's blindness, but it's not theater, you know? And then I went there and I was, I was weeping with gratitude for the fact of having a collective experience with somebody who wasn't the dude that I went with or, you know, my, my dad or my, you know, my boyfriend at the time or more my roommate. I was so glad. And I love all those people, but I was so glad to be having a collective experience with strangers. It was so important. Um, yeah, it was really effective. Absolutely. Um, what is it that you teach at, at Randolph? I teach in the acting area. So Randolph is, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a, uh, it's a musical theater, uh, college, private college. Uh, so we have a music section, uh, an acting section and a dance section. So I teach in the, in the theater, in the acting section. Um, and, uh, I teach movement for actors. Uh, I teach a, a first term course called Acting Foundations. I co-teach that. I do a little bit of scene study. Um, I'm primarily getting at, um, I would say, I'm getting at the uh, physical physical connection to whatever they're working on. Um, that seems to be my main my main thrust, my main bias that I'm trying to kind of help them explore more. And do you direct? as well I sh yeah i do i do actually i uh i was really really lucky uh to well yeah to direct there i um i've been working there for uh just a little over a year now so it's new it's since the pandemic um and in january to march of of 2022 
I was able to direct a show called Unity 1918, which is a Canadian show by Kevin Kerr. Um, and it, that show was about uh, the 1918 flu pandemic sweeping through this small Saskatchewan town. And uh, it's so when when that was the play that was chosen, they chose it before they asked me to direct. Um, excuse me. I, uh, I realized, oh, this is an opportunity for us to, for anybody who comes to see the show, to have their experience reflected and to, for us to tell them everything's going to be okay through the show. Um, and then, uh, that went really, really well. And, uh, and they asked me to direct again. And so I, chose the government inspector the the gogol play which is a beast of a play it is a uh, beast of a play but it is a win oh, it is it so is it is it is so much fun that that an audience i think can often be very forgiving yeah and we uh you know was it was really about style giving the, these students who are really really getting a very good grounding in musical theater training um to go totally outside of that box and get something that was way more physically stylized. And, uh, I really, I really had them look at a lot of, um, sort of slapstick vaudeville, you know, Looney Tunes, that kind of, that kind of stuff, things where the timing is really, really essential. And they just, they, they really, really hit it out of the park. Um, and I'm going to be directing, I think, by the time that you, uh, well, I'm going to be directing another show. I can't say what it is yet, <laughs> um, but it looks like I'm going to be directing another show in January. Nice. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Nice. Um, now I, I really want to talk about, uh, waiting for the dawn, Yay. uh, which is, um, at the the Dan Taylor New Works Festival from November thirtieth mm -hmm. to December fourth, so and you're acting in that. So, what is Waiting for the Dawn? So, Waiting for the Dawn is a play. It's an early work by um, my dear dear friend, uh, almost family at this point, and um, and I consider her my artistic mentor. This is Erica Batdorf, um, and she wrote this for herself in 1991 and she performed it as a solo work then and then in 2008 i uh i got a chalmers professional development grant to um study in more depth with erica some of the some of the corporeal mime elements of her of her training uh, something called orational movement which if you think of like oratory but movement um and, uh, so I, I did, we used this play as a kind of a case study for that. And then once the grant was, you know, done, we thought, well, now I've learned all this material, <laughs> maybe I should perform the thing. So I, I performed it first in, um, in 2009, uh, at the SummerWorks festival here in Toronto and it went pretty well. And, um, Aaron Rotherman, who is the artistic producer at the, at the Dion Taylor theater and the general manager at video cabaret, which is this, the in-house uh, that's, that's there at their space, um, reached out to me and said, we're, we're starting up this festival. Do you have anything that might be right for it? And I, 
I have a number of solo works uh, that are just kind of sitting there in the repertoire, you know, um, and but this was the one for me, you know, I, I looked at a few different pieces and I thought, yeah, this one's this one's the one. It's a show about should I tell you what it's about? Yes, please, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have more questions about it? I'm just gassing on now. No, no, um, I want to hear about it. Okay, so it's a show. Uh, I play three different characters. I play a man who's trying therapy for the first time because he thinks he might be losing his mind. And a woman who's a Southern Belle who um, has been doing meditation for a little while. And it's kind of working but she's gotten a little bit frustrated. And so she's giving God a deadline to give her a vision. And she gave God that deadline in uh, first thing just after dawn this morning. And so now we're waiting in the theater for dawn because that's the deadline. So if, if she gets a vision, then we're all going to see this amazing thing. And if she doesn't get a vision, then we can all move on to something else like astrology or something else, you know, uh, is kind of the, is kind of what she says. And then I play, um, the, this sort of divine being, maybe an angel who is kind of like the guardian angel of both of them. Um, and we start to understand that maybe these two people are connected and maybe they're connected, but we don't quite know how, and that reveals itself throughout the show nice yeah now is this is this show the i mean you you performed it at summer works but is it your first this show the your first solo performance or have you done solo in the past i have done solo work in the past yeah um i've done it in different mediums so um i also i worked with a company in vancouver called kokoro dance uh and they do uh, a japanese contemporary dance form uh just sort of dance theater form called buto and so i studied there for a few years and worked uh worked with kokoro um on a number of projects and then i commissioned uh barbara bourget who's one of the artistic directors of the company um i commissioned her to choreograph a full-length solo for me um so that piece crumbling was one of the other um options that i might do that i thought i might do for this uh festival um and then i've had i've had other works solo works that i've done that i've created myself and um others that i've set had you know other choreographers set on me that kind of thing so um yeah i'm used to doing solo work i like it it's it makes it easy uh sort of Easy I in mean, some ways, harder in others. <laughs> yes, I was about to say because it's yeah. it makes touring a lot easier. It makes touring easy. Traveling yeah. with a show so easy, yeah. um, but in other ways, it makes traveling with a show so hard. Yeah, a little bit lonely, and there's yeah. there's a little bit of that stuff that goes on, and you know, especially if I'm taking on any producing role, which I often you know take wear multiple hats, uh, that can can sometimes challenge the, the art, you know, the artistic expression element, mm -hmm. because a, a little part of my brain is going, oh, is the light, what's going on with the sound? What's happening? Or do they, did we get that? Mm. You know, there's a little, a little dialogue that's going on about production elements sometimes. So I have learned how to compartmentalize those or to try to like, calm that voice a little bit. It's mm. usually not trying to force it away, like shut up. It's usually more, Thanks, producer Matthew. I'm really glad that you brought that up. 
let's talk about that after the rehearsal is done. Okay. Yeah. You know, sort of talking with myself with as much compassion as I can muster. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard though. I mean, as a, yeah. as a, when you're traveling with the show, usually you're the only, like you're got, you you have to do it all, especially if, if you're like just a solo performer, say on a fringe circuit. Totally. Um, what I learned to do was to front load all of the production work beforehand so yeah. that when i didn't have time it was really easy like if i need a pull quote if i need an image to to share with a pull quote i have those in a folder and i yeah. can quickly pull those exactly. slap some text on it and get it out there i don't have to be like oh i should i need to create an image like i've i've done all of the hard work yeah and now i've got it i've, I've got it all set up yeah exactly now as from one solo performer to another i know why i am drawn to it Mm -hmm. For me, it's, there's something about that, you know, when an audience goes on a journey with you, you feel that in a way that is so visceral, like you feel them coming with you. And when they are with you, it's, it's like a drug, right? It's so good. Um, <laughs> and then I remember the first time I performed a solo show, I, after I finished that run, I was like, I want more of this. Um, so for you, what is it that draws you to the solo performance? Well. There's a couple things. I would say that performance in general, one of the things, especially if it's, if it's a piece like this, where I know who made it and I know, I know her background and I know her motivations from just making work in general. Um, and this is sometimes where the mentorship really really comes in because I'm, I'm aligned with that. And one of the things that Erica often says for people when, cause she also teaches people how to make solo works. Um, and one of the things she says is find a compelling reason within yourself to write the, the bloody thing, you know, um, or to perform, to perform the thing and let it be a question to which you do not actually have an answer so that the creation process becomes and the performing process even more importantly becomes a, a, a way of attempting to answer this unanswered question for yourself this keeps it compelling then link that to something that you see that is like your personal search to something that is going on in the world that you identify as like oh this is this is the culture trying to answer a question that's not unlike this personal question that I'm trying to answer in my own life. So that there's a, there's a personal and, a, and, a, and a universal, if you will, kind of a kind of idea. So for me overall in performing, even if it's not a, a, a piece like this that has, um, I know come from a place like that. I try to do that. What is this piece talking about and what, what, is that like in my own world that I can, that I can bring to that. So I think that that's possible, especially if I'm creating something that I, I know that that's something that I want to just sort of, I, the thing about that in a solo context is I have nobody else's concerns that I also am trying to manage and include and whatever. It's just, okay, this is the thing that I'm working with. And this is the thing that I'm seeing in the world that I am seeing in the world. So there's a chance for point of view. It's one of the reasons why I like directing as well is because it, it I get to 
be the one that drives the point of view and to have that change of, and, you know, be transformed, of course, by the people that I'm working with. But I think that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in solo work as well, is that there's, there's no, um, once I'm in flow, once I'm in a creative process and I get into flow state, I get really, really pissy if that gets interrupted. <laughs> and as much as I love other humans, which I really do, otherwise I would have gone into academics. Um, as much as I love other humans, sometimes I'm just on a roll and I need, so I need to just keep going rather than have somebody be like, well, what about this? Or I also want to talk about this thing. It's like, mm, no, mm, shut mm. up. I just, I, I'm on a roll. Please let me keep going. You know, mm. um, do you find when you're performing and you hit that flow state of the performance, mm. it's just you that the, cause it is, you're, there's a relationship that the solo performer has with the audience. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not just internal when it's not an internal flow state. It's a flow state of, of, um, give and take communication yeah. with the audience, silent, silent, sometimes not silent communication with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. It, I was, I was actually shocked with, with how much the audience became my scene partner Yeah, in the, in the show. Like, I, I don't think I was my, my director told me that that would happen. Mm. He said, you got to make eye contact with the audience, which I was like, I got to make contact, contact with the audience. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> but I did. Um, although I cheated the first, the first performance cause I was too freaked out. Like I sort of like did that thing where you look between people. Mm -hmm. Um, but after that I actually made eye contact, but then they become, they do become your scene partner and you start like seeing how people react to things that you're saying. And you take, you, you're like, this is my guy for this part of the show. And this is my guy for this part of the show. And it, it, it becomes this fascinating thing that changes. Erica talked about this particular show, showing her that she just wrote the thing. You know, and she was performing the thing. And there's a moment in the play where there's a real sense of engagement with the audience, a real sense of engagement with them. And, and she wasn't expecting the audience to be as moved as they were by that moment. And she had people come after her afterward and be like, oh, it broke my heart when you didn't follow through with that thing or whatever. I'm trying to like make it so that anybody who comes, who's listening to this and who comes and sees yes, this yeah, doesn't get yeah. anything ruined for them. But yeah. there's some moments of really beautiful connection where it's not, it's not exactly audience participation or anything, but where there's, it's just this sort of invitational quality that, that the performer is meant to have of like, I see you and I care about you. Um, and, and then to have that get taken away. She said it was people were like, oh, no, please, please don't take that away. It feels so good to be cared for in that moment. Um, and uh, and then she said that 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 kind of was mind blowing for her and it affected how she made work going forward, how she wrote, thinking about how can I compose or conduct perhaps the the ebbs and flows of the of the audience response not just for her own you know not just because it's a, like a drug as you said because it is kind of like a drug but also for them to have a transformative experience how can i make it so that people who don't usually breathe are breathing how can i make it so that people who have a a, a fairly sort of 
repressed or shut down emotional life, start to crack that open a little bit in the context of theater where they're in the dark and maybe it's safe to, to cry or it's safe to laugh or it's safe to, to have a shark, to be shocked or, you know, whatever. Yeah, for sure. Um, just as we sort of draw to a close here, oh my God. I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned your wellness practice. You, went, mm -hmm. you mentioned the, that, that, and I'm curious about how, first off, how you found your way to the wellness practice, but also how does, does the wellness work that you do relate to theater? They have the same goal. So, um, to me, theater is for, and really any kind of live performance medium is, is for the the viewer to become engaged with the material but also with their own state in a brand new way and to come away transformed um and perhaps become a fuller more self-aware version of themselves that's my goal with every single show that i do so i um i feel perhaps very privileged. Um, but also this is, this is me prioritizing. Like I, I don't want to audition for shows that I don't believe in. I don't, I don't want to audition for shows that I don't believe in. I don't want to, or that are like, oh, this is kind of cool to me. It's, I, I, it has to be like, filet mignon. like I have to, I, I have to really be able to really bite into it. Um, and I have to feel like it has meaning to me that I can then move outward to the audience. And that's not to say that things that I don't want to do are not, are meaningless. It's just, it has to have some sort of personal resonance. Otherwise I, I, I shouldn't be the actor. There should be an actor in that role who's, who does have the personal resonance, you know? Um, it's about building self-awareness. It's about transformation for me. and. Uh, I, the wellness practice is exactly the same. So I started, I started teaching yoga. Basically I hit a point in, um, I hit a point maybe 12 years ago, which is very much what you said, Phil about, you know, okay, well the day job moment, it was that, but I knew that I couldn't do a day job. That was, I had done a lot of theater admin and I, I knew that it wasn't I could do it. I was good at it, but I, I, I wasn't, it wasn't for me. Um, and I knew that I couldn't be a server. I would die as a server. Um, I, and I admire anybody who can do it. It's, it's a trial by fire. Um, and I thought, well, what are the things that I love? I know that, th that theater and performing and directing and creating, this is, this is always number one. But what do I love at such a degree that it, that it at least approaches that amount of love? And at that point I had been practicing yoga a lot and I loved it. And I knew that I wanted to teach artists as well, that that was something that I was also passionate about. And I, so I signed myself up for uh, a teacher training in the yoga style that I was doing at that time, which was called Moksha at the time, now Modo. And then, um, and then just, you know, one of those universe things, uh, the person who gave the flamboyant speech at York when I went for my audition was Peter McKinnon. And Peter, 
is an awesome human. And he, uh, he called me out of the blue one day and said, Hey, I need a TA for my theater management course that I'm, that I teach at the school. Do you want to come and TA for me? And so I went and did that for, you know, five years or something like that with him. Um, and then the wellness practice kind of grew and I, I started to do more and more, um, I, I did more trainings that had to do with, uh, the therapeutic side of yoga and, um, working with people and building really deep, subtle physiological self-awareness in order to help address things like pain, strain, stress, and injury. And then what I thought was really cool that started to happen in that practice was, you know, we'd be doing something, somebody would have a shoulder injury and we'd be doing sort of these little micro movements to try to help them clean up their movement patterns and whatever. And at a certain point they'd turn and they'd turn to me, they're on the floor and they'd look at me and they'd be like, this isn't just about my shoulder, is it? <laughs> and I would say, I don't think so. No, <laughs> but I, my training is just the movement. You know, and then as I studied, um, with Erica, uh, to, to teach her movement stuff, cause she has a technique that she, that she does called the Batdorf technique. Um, and that is about deep physiological awareness and connecting that so that you can, um, create repeatable, believable emotional states as an actor. So I trained in that. And then I knew that I wanted to take that and use it in a therapeutic context as well. And so once I had that under my belt, I started to, it, it really started to open up for the people coming to me for their, you know, chronic pain and injuries when they would hit that point where they were like, this isn't just about my shoulder. I think there's something mental, emotional going on that we could hold space for that exploration as well. And then the next step that started to happen, and this was a little bit Missy Tinkle woo woo, but it was happening really consistently, which was people would start to um, they would start to like, I was seeing one person at a time and one person would come in and they'd be like, you know, we'd be working and they'd say like, you know, I, I think, I think there's something that has to do with releasing my solar plexus to help free up my breathing into my emotional states. And I'd be like, okay cool. Awesome. Let's take note of that. And then the next person would cut, they'd, they'd go off and then the next person would come in and they'd be like, my solar plexus is really locked up. And I think it has something to do with my emotions. And I'd be like, oh my God, these people are like communicating with each other without even knowing it. It's, it sounds really new agey, but it was one of those things that I, I kept happening. And I, I was like, I can't explain this. It seems too new agey to be real. But it seems to be happening. And then, so then there was this, again, this, this is where it gets back to theater is that it, that to me is people in doing what's called entraining to one another. So when you have a collective experience, everybody's kind of heart rate starts to sync up. It's the same sort of thing that happens in pods of dolphins where like, how are they not crashing into each other? They're doing what's called entrainment. They're so connected with each other that they can move fast and in a tight clump and not hit each other. And same thing with birds flocking. So humans have this capability as well. Again, it sounds a little out there, but there's all sorts of interesting studies about it um, that show that 
you know, human sinking of breath and heart rate, heart rate and endocrine response. This happens in audiences. Um, and in fact, um, in fact, Erica's, uh, been hooking up with, um, some researchers that are really, really interested in the endocrine responses and the heart rate responses and the breath responses of audience members. And so we're doing things with like, you know, attaching sensors to audience members while they're doing, while they're watching this sort of physically compelling work that Erica makes. And so it's that to me was such an interesting crossover because I knew about the scientific research that was happening with Erica's work. And then I was seeing something kind of like that happening with my therapeutic clients as well. And I thought these two things are about transformation and self-awareness and really deep physiological, like the body as the locus of our transformation. And so to me, that was the thing I, I spent a lot of time over the years as a wellness worker and an artist going, I know these two things are parallel and I can tell that they're sort of supporting each other, but it was more theoretical, more kind of idea based. And then when I hit that point, I realized, oh, this is the same thing, just in a different media. That is fascinating stuff, because I know from my own experience and, and seeing in, in other people, the fact that. Yeah, I know that we store emotion oh. in deep tissue, right? Do you know about like, uh do you know about The Body Keeps the Score? Do you know about that book? I don't know the book. I just know uh from my own experience, like suddenly and this happened way as as far back as theater school where somebody would be like they have a knot and then suddenly it's like you like do a little a little pressure on that. All of a sudden they're like, Why am I angry? Yeah, or yeah. or like it and it's just because there was emotion that you didn't want to deal with, and so you pushed it into this into your like shoulder muscle for some reason yeah. and it stayed there until it just gets too tight. And then we have to, for we have to work it out. It's fascinating when that we do that. It's so, it's an amazing, it's, it is amazing. It is such an adaptive behavior. Human beings are so awesome. The fact that we can have a traumatic or upsetting experience and be like, you know what? I can't actually deal with this right now. I'm going to deal with it later. People who avoid it, they think they're pushing the emotion away or they're pushing the experience away. What they're actually doing is pushing it in. They're pushing it into a tissue of their body where it is waiting to come back out and get processed. So it's just, it's in a queue. It's in a, it's in a line, basically like mm -hmm. a lineup waiting to get processed in your body. And then when you unpack it, like, you know, work on the knot or something, suddenly it's like, oh, it's my turn to get processed. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. So the same thing happens for audience members through the collective experience, especially when the actors are well embodied. Then we have the audience now having a, a mirror response from their own mirror neurons. I yawn, you yawn, you know, that kind of stuff starts to happen with the audience. And this is what you called a moment ago when the audience goes with you as a solo performer, when they're with you, that's what's That's the physiology. There's physiology to that, you know? And so then it, in the same way that doing a pressure point on a knot and suddenly why am I angry? The collective experience and now you're breathing in a new way that other people are helping to helping you to breathe in a way that is different for you. All of a sudden you're going to be contacting new tissues in your body and unlocking stuff. That's the transformation. So when I talk about transformation, it can be, it can sound very like, oh, I'm a, you know, sort of hippie. 
And yeah, I mean, maybe, but also I'm interested in the science of, and the physiology of how do we make change in our own state? And then how does theater help us help others transform and make change in their own state and heal their wounds, you know? It's fascinating stuff. I love it. As you can tell from the yeah. increase in volume and speed of my voice, <laughs> I'm really nerdy about this stuff. I love it so much. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me tonight. It was great to, to chat with you and get to know you. Oh my gosh, this was so great. I loved it. Thank you. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember... If you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.